double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. When these lines were first heard in 1606 in the, the Globe Theater, I'm sure they sent a shiver down the spine of everyone in Shakespeare's audience. As you well know, Macbeth was a general in King Duncan's army, and coming home victorious after battle, he encounters three witches that have this cauldron and are predicting the future. They greet him with titles that he eventually will gain, and one of them is that he will be the king of Scotland. And so he doesn't quite believe the witches. He doesn't believe that they can see the future, but he shares this information with his lovely wife, Lady Macbeth, who becomes a little OCD about the whole thing, won't let it go, and the two of them together begin talking about it and fantasizing about it and eventually plotting and then executing their plan to kill King Duncan, the King of Scotland. Of course, they, they kill King Duncan and Macbeth usurps the throne and becomes king himself and becomes quite paranoid about people taking him off the throne until he goes back to the, the witches and asks about his future, and they assure him that he is safe because uh, he will not be dethroned, he will not be killed until the forest marches on Dunsinane and he cannot be killed by anyone who is born of woman. And so he figures, well, everyone's born of woman, so I must be safe. And so there's this idea of predicting the future and causing the future that becomes a question in every high school or college literature class on Macbeth. If you ever want to spot for an exam, you can prepare for that one. It's going to be on the test. This question is, whose fault is it that King Duncan dies? Uh, is it the witches for planting this idea in Macbeth that causes him to think through these things? I mean, it's, it's meeting them and their prediction that he'll be king that starts off a chain of events that leads to him killing King Duncan and becoming king himself. Or if he had never met the witches at all, and they didn't tell him that they had seen the future, would this future have played out as it was, even though he had never thought about that before? This was actually a question in one of our um, senior classes on Macbeth, and I decided to be a little creative, before I realized that's not what high school teachers are always looking for, and I offered an alternative view, and tried to make a case that it, it doesn't really matter, it was neither... It was neither the witches nor Macbeth that led to the death of Duncan because their lives and their futures were all determined by the real author, William Shakespeare himself. I don't remember what the grade is that I got on that, but I still think I was right. It doesn't matter who the witches thought was going to be king or what Macbeth thought he was going to do. This was a plan that had been written and conceived of in the mind of William Shakespeare and written in produced and performed and has been come down through the ages as one of the great tragedies in, in British literature because it's such a great story and it was all his idea, not Macbeth's. There's no real consequence to whatever you say in that essay, by the way. Nobody cares except your high school teacher. Um, but there is a concept in Scripture. The same question is raised in theology. 
Is the future already set? Is it something that God can see, or is it something that God causes? And the reason we're talking about this this morning is because this is what Peter is talking about in his letter. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now last week we met the author and we learned that he was writing to a flock um, of scattered Christians throughout an area in in what we now call modern-day Turkey. They had fled there because of persecution uh, in what he calls the dispersion, and they are scattered, and, and they may be fearing that God has forgotten them. They may be fearing that their salvation is not secure because instead of being blessed by becoming Christians, they're being persecuted for becoming Christians. And so Peter writes this letter that would be circulated among them to give them hope. And he tells them, basically, keep calm and carry on. The, first, the letter of 1 Peter is a letter on how to live the Christian life. It's a condensed version of basic Christianity 101. Keep calm, even if you're being persecuted, even if you are suffering, even if you're going through various trials, and just do the next right thing. And then he writes his epistle to show what that looks like. Don't panic. God is in control. And so it's to this skittish, scattered little flock that he writes in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Most people start off their letters with uh, kind of a, hi, how are you doing? Not Peter. Uh, Peter's greeting is marinated in some of the deepest theology in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at four foundation stones of salvation. In his greeting to these people, he's laying a foundation that they are saved and that they are secure in their salvation and so that they can draw hope from this in a time of panic. So we're going to look at four foundation stones of salvation and just, spoiler alert, we're only going to get to one this week. Um, plan of salvation. This week we're going to look at the plan of salvation. God himself. Um, The path of salvation, which is holiness or sanctification. The purpose of salvation, obedience to Jesus Christ. And the promise of salvation, the covenant that binds all this together. And so all of that's found just in those first couple of verses in the greeting, but we're going to look at this one. This is a very deep theological question, and so it deserves its own sermon, the plan of salvation. Look at verse 1 again. Peter's writing to those who are elect exiles, it's quite an interesting term, of the dispersion in those places. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when you go over to someone's house for a steak dinner, you expect them to greet you at the door, have a few minutes of polite talk, uh, maybe pour you a drink, maybe um, offer you a, a starter. Not Peter. He meets you at the door and sticks the steak in your mouth and says, chew first, chat later. We're about to have five chapters from Peter on how to live the Christian life, but first what he wants to get out of the way is election and foreknowledge. Arguably some of the chewiest doctrinal issues in the whole New Testament, and he hasn't even finished greeting us yet. Why? Why does he greet using these loaded terms? And the answer is because Peter knows that the best medicine for panic 
is hope. He wants to give you hope of your future. He wants to give you confidence in where you stand with God because it's a very common thing for Christians to think when they're going through some deep personal trials, where is God in all of this? What have I done wrong? Why is this happening to me? And so Peter wants to remind you that those things have nothing to do with your relationship with God. The circumstances you're in do not reflect your relationship to God. Your plan of salvation was set before these things happened. And so he's going to give us hope of eternal salvation to help this flock endure their suffering. So the Greek word here that he uses in the first verse, to those who are elect exiles, it's a word that means chosen or called out. Eclectos. Um, you talk about having an eclectic music selection. That means that you don't only like a certain type of music, but you, you call out different genres and you put them together and you have an eclectic music collection or an eclectic taste in furniture or something like that. That's the same word, to, to choose out of a group. So he calls them elect exiles. Last week we looked at what it means to be an exile. Somebody who's away from your home. They've been chosen though. This is a word that is used 18 times in the New Testament by six different authors. It's not a minor doctrine. It's peppered throughout the New Testament and in fact the Old Testament. It's all over the Bible. It's one of these things, uh, it's, it's a controversial topic today, and I'll explain a bit of that later, why that is, but there's lots of Christians who don't, or who will say that they don't believe in election. They don't teach election in their churches. I venture to say, other than the Presbyterians, this is the only church in Mobile I know of that's going to teach you what you're going to hear today. Maybe we're wrong. Hopefully I can convince you from Scripture that we're not. But it's one of these doctrines that once you see it, and you see how to find it in Scripture, you suddenly notice it everywhere, and it's exhilarating. Um, my son, for his birthday this weekend, got a telescope. And he loves looking at the stars, and so we thought we'll get him a telescope. And he's been looking at the stars for many, many years, and they just look like stars. But now we have a really cool telescope. And last night, for the very first time, we saw the rings of Saturn. I mean, it's one thing to see it on a postcard. It's another thing when you're looking and you see them, and they're actually there. And it was exhilarating, wasn't it? It was amazing. Now you just want to go back every night and check that they're still there. And they are. It's like that when you find the doctrine of election in Scripture. You're just, you're just like, wait a minute, this is... Everywhere, it's there. Every time I read a verse, every passage I go to, the concept that God is in control and that he decides things before they happen and that he causes them to happen, it's in the Bible. Don't just take my word for it. We're going to focus in and look ourselves. But here's just a sampling of writers that use this word. This word elect is a word that Jesus used. And he used it so much that his apostles were familiar with it, and that's why it seeps into their writings as well. Here's a few cases. Uh, Matthew 24, 31, Jesus says, And he, God, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four wings. That's Matthew 24, 31. Mark 13, 22, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. To lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
That's Mark 13, 22. Luke 18, 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In 2 John chapter 1 and verse 1, John writes to the elect lady and her children. Uh, so, I mean, you're going to start seeing this word pop up here and there in the New Testament. It's all over. You can't be a Christian and say, I don't believe in election. I mean, it's in the Bible. What you can say is, I don't believe what you believe about what the word means. And that's fair enough. But you can't say, I don't believe in election. God elects. It's there. But in the 1500s, the followers of a man called Jacobus Arminius and a guy called John Calvin, Jean Calvin, their followers, not them, their followers started a theological bar fight that has been lasting till this day. A sharks and jets rivalry for 500 years. And the two gangs are called the Arminians and the Calvinists. And both claim not to use that name, they just call themselves Biblicists. Well, we're all using the same Bible, sure. What Arminians teach is that election, like I say, everyone believes in election, even Arminians, they believe that election is conditional on human faith. Calvinists, I would identify myself that way, or someone else would identify me that way. A Calvinist teach that, uh, Calvinists teach that election is unconditional and grants faith. So those are the two differences. Arminians say that God elects, but that election is conditional on your faith. And Calvinists say that election is unconditional, but that it causes faith. And that's why we call it unconditional election. It's the you in tulip, if you're keeping track of those things. So, both believe in election. One says God elects so that they do believe, and the other says that God elects those who already believe. Now, why is this hair-splitting important? We'll turn to Romans 9 while we answer that question. I'm going to summarize it again. Arminians teach that people believe and then they become elect because they believe. Calvinists teach that God elects so that you become a believer. You see the difference there? It's so, it's so nuanced, but it's important. Arminians teach that you believe, so you become elect. Calvinists teach that God elects, so you become a believer. So one foresees the future, and the other one causes the future. That's another way to see it. Hopefully the bird will land, and this will come into focus a little as we keep going. But the reason this hair splitting is important is because of what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to grant you hope and confidence by teaching you that and reminding you that God knows beforehand what's going to happen to you and he's in control of that. It's not just that he knows what's going to happen and can't do anything about it. Like every time you watch Top Gun, you see that Goose is going to die. And you just want to yell and tell Maverick, don't fly into the jet stream, you're going to kill him. And you, they do it anyway, and he dies every time. There's nothing you can do. And so some people view God as that way. He's, he's looking ahead into the future and seeing what people do, and then he responds. But he can't really do anything to change it. Whereas the other view says, no, he creates the future by doing something at a certain point in time that makes the future happen the way he wants it to. 
And you have to decide which view you have based on what you see in the Bible. So is election conditional upon faith? Does God see the future or does God do something that causes the future? Let me read for you Romans 9, verse 11. 9, 11. Though they, he's speaking about uh, Jacob and Esau here. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she, their mom, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9 is a very important chapter, and Romans 9, 11, and 12, very important verses in this discussion, because it gives us a crystal clear example of something that was done before these people believed anything. Jacob and Esau, in the womb of Rebekah, Rebekah was told, this is what's going to happen. I'm choosing Jacob to be the firstborn, even though he's going to be the secondborn, is what's happening. Because I want to show that the line of the promise of Israel goes to whoever I choose. So even though it should go to Esau, I'm going to make it that it goes to Jacob. And then you know the story with the fur and the cheating and the lying, the blind father, but it happens. And you say, well, did God see that that was going to happen or did he do something to make that happen, that Jacob gets the blessing instead of Esau, even though Jacob was the younger? And Paul tells us, Romans 9, 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. It's not like God chose Jacob because he was good. Go read Jacob's life. The guy's shady. He stole the blessing. Even his, uh, so even though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. And it was written, I love Jacob. Uh, Jacob I love. Esau I hated. Before either of them had done anything. Now, does that sound fair? No. I'm just going to go out and say what you're all thinking. No. Doesn't sound fair. That's not my question right now. My question right now is, is it in the Bible? Okay, those are two different issues. I've got an answer for, is it fair? But first I want to establish, is it in the Bible? Well, yeah, that's what it says. Okay, you can also go to Ephesians 1 if you're keeping track. So God chose Jacob before he was born. Ephesians 1 tells us this is how he chooses us. Not just Jacob, but believers, all Christians. Ephesians 1, 4. Paul is rejoicing in God and what he can do. And he says, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. And people sometimes say, oh, you go to that church, you believe in predestination. And you kind of want to... You mean I believe in Ephesians 1, chapter... Ephesians 1, 4, and 5? I mean, Paul uses the word. I didn't make up the word. John Calvin didn't make up the word. In love, he predestined us. He chose us. He elected us. And when, and this is the most important part in the discussion, when does he choose you? Does he choose you the moment you have faith in him and you become elect? Or does he choose you before you have faith in him? That's why you become elect. So what's going on? Well, I mean, the answer's in the verse that you can cheat. You can look there. 
He chose us in him before what? The foundation of the world. Okay, so is that before or after you were born? Okay. It's way before, I mean, some of you, yeah, it was way before any of us were born. Some are closer than, than the foundation of the world than the others, but just a little. It's okay. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he chose us before we chose him, before we believed anything, before we decided, before we threw the pine cone in the fire at youth camp, before we you know, made that decision to get baptized. That's when he chose us, before. In fact, before you were born, in fact, before he made the world. That's what the doctrine of election teaches. You can go back to 1 Peter. So at this point, you might say, how can anyone not believe in it? Why is it that the vast majority of Baptists don't believe this? Well, the answer is linked to the second controversial word that Peter uses in this verse. Foreknowledge. See, he says he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this is why people can believe in election, but not always believe the same thing. Because the word foreknowledge is kind of an interesting word. What does that mean? Does it mean that he knows what's going to happen in the future? He can see in the future? In which case, sure, he chose us. When? But he looked in the future. He saw who would believe in him. And he chose us before any of us were born. Or does it mean he does something before you're born, before the foundation of the world, that causes a future in which you were saved or not saved? So, so the word foreknowledge is where the whole debate actually comes together. The Greek word is prognosko, prognoskin, sorry, prognosin in this form, prognosin. Does it sound like an English word? Is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> prognosis, yeah. When you go to your doctor for a prognosis, what are you asking him? What's going to happen in the future with my disease? And the doctor doesn't really know, but he gives a prognosis. It's a guess. Let me, let me just explain. When God tells you what's going to happen in the future, he knows, okay? So God gives a prognosis. This word, prognosko, is used five times in the New Testament, and each time it always means to thoroughly know something beforehand. And so it doesn't really answer our question, because the question is, does he see the future or does he cause the future? Let me read for you Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It's one of the places the word is used. Tell me if you think God saw this happening or God caused this happening. Acts 2, 23. Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And this phrase, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, they're equated to each other. They're the same thing. The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, these are the things that caused the crucifixion of Christ. He's blaming the people for doing it. You handed these, he's saying to the Jews, you handed this man over to the lawless men, the, the Gentiles, the Romans, they don't even keep the Jewish law, and they crucified him, and Peter's blaming them, but he's insisting that all of this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge prognosco of God. Interesting. So did God cause the crucifixion? Absolutely. It's not like God was like, I really hope someone crucifies Jesus, otherwise his whole plan goes to pot. I mean, that's not what's happening. 
Obviously, the crucifixion is the climax of history. God was 100% sure it was going to happen. He knew the exact timing. He prophesied it hundreds of years before. He planned the whole thing, and that's what we call foreknowledge. Jesus' death was man's doing because of man's decision, and man is held culpable for it, including Judas, including the Romans, including the Jews. And yet, God made it happen. Same with our salvation. Your response is crucial. Your repentance is crucial. Your decision, the exercise of your free will, if that's the language you want to use, is all part of your salvation. But who planned it? God planned it. So Romans 8.29 says this. That was Acts 2.23. This is Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, same word, prognosco, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So you see here, here's that word again, predestination. It's linked with foreknowledge. The whole debate is kind of meshed in this idea of God knowing the future, predestining the future, preordaining it. That's Romans 8.29. The same people he foreknew or the same people he predestines or the same people that he draws and calls or the same people that he grants faith to is the same people that end up in heaven and glorified. Romans 8, 28 and 29. So the offered solution as theologians talk about this is, maybe you've heard this phrase, the corridors of time. God looks down the corridors of time. He sees who will respond to the gospel one day. And before he creates the whole world, looking down the corridors of time, he chooses those people as his elect and treats them as called out chosen ones. Based on what? based on the faith that he foresees. So that's how Arminians can say that salvation, uh, election is conditional. God grants election and salvation, but it's conditional on what you believe in the future. The people who don't believe it, they don't get the election. So Arminians teach that election is conditional. What does the Bible teach about your salvation? Conditional or unconditional? The Bible teaches that if it were left up to you to make the decision, you most certainly would make the wrong decision. Nobody chooses God. Everyone is born in sin. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. God has to make you alive. And so if you were here on Wednesday, you heard us explain this a little bit, right? With the, It's like, well, what about my free will? Well, you have free will. Of course you do. Um, but then why is our parking lot full of cars this morning? Why didn't you all just fly here? I mean, do you think Superman's going to drive his car? No, he's just going to fly. He's got free will. You've got free will. Why don't you use it? And the answer is because I can't fly. Right? Why can't you? Because I'm a human. So you, can, you have free will within your nature. Birds can fly. They use their free will to fly. You don't use yours to fly because it's not in your nature. That's why I can teach my dog to sit. but I can't teach him to meow. Because sitting, he may have free will, he may not, he may decide to do it or obey or not or get the treat. I can teach him to lie down and play dead. But if he's actually dead, I can't teach him anything. First, I have to make him alive to teach him something. So if you're dead, you need to be made alive. And once you have a nature, you need a new nature if you're going to make better choices. So how do you, how do you give a new nature to somebody who's dead who has an old nature? Well, you have, to, you have to, I mean, how you do it, we can't do it. God does it takes out your heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. 
So who gets the credit? God does. So he's not looking for you to do anything and then choosing the good ones. It goes in the face of everything else we know about grace by faith alone. Spurgeon said it this way, Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. He said, um, God gives faith. Therefore, he could not have elected them on faith that he foresaw. The Bible teaches us God gives faith. And then he uses this example. There shall be 20 beggars in the street, and I determine to give one of them a shilling. But will anyone say I determined to give that one a shilling because I foresaw that he would have it? That would be talking nonsense, unquote. So to say that God knows, chooses the people that he knows in the future will choose him is just making nonsense out of that whole concept. It reverses the meaning of the word election. Election is not a reactive response. It is a proactive decision. Let me say that again. Okay, some of you use Twitter. Um, election is not a reactive response. Election is a proactive decision. That's what the word means. So God is not reacting to your response of believing. He's causing it. He's proactively doing something. He's choosing people. That's what the word means. We, we use this in English all the time. We don't say we elect the president by looking into the future and knowing who's going to be president and then picking that one. That's just not what the word means. He becomes president because we elect him. Or they elected him. Or whoever, you know. The person becomes president because people choose him. Not the other way. It doesn't make any sense to say you choose the one that would have been chosen. Well, what? It's weird. He chose to be president. We just guessed right. No, we chose him. So if God knows something is going to happen and he's in charge of making it happen, then he's the one that makes it happen. Otherwise, it's like saying the reason King Duncan died is because Shakespeare knew that was going to happen, so he had to write the play that way. Well, Shakespeare's in charge of who dies and who lives in his plays. He's the author. It doesn't make any sense to say, well, he, King Duncan didn't have a chance. Shakespeare couldn't do anything about it because he looked in the future and saw him die. The theologian Lorraine Butner says, foreknowledge implies certainty, and certainty implies foreknowledge. If God knows the course of history, then history will follow that course as certainly as a locomotive on its tracks. So why do people bulk at this doctrine? What's, what's not to... I mean, it's, it's in the Bible. Why do people not want it to be there? Why do they try to explain it away? Well, there's two reasons. One is... Because if God's already chosen who's going to be saved, that means there's people who can't be saved, right? So let's say you're praying for your brother to be saved, but deep down you're thinking, well, God's already chosen if he's saved or not. So what, what am I doing praying? Why do I even bother to share the gospel? If, he, if he's not elected, he can't be saved. And so they say, that can't, it can't mean that. But this is what nobody seems to realize when you're actually having the conversation. Both views teach that. Think about it. I, I like to do this when I speak to Arminians and they, they explain their view, you know, that God hasn't chosen beforehand and, 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 
anyone who believes that any time can be saved, which I agree with. And then I say to them, I just think your view is so sad because that means there's some people who have no chance of salvation. And they say, no, that's your view. And I'm like, no. No, in your view, God has looked down the corridors of time and seen my brother didn't choose him. And there's nothing he can do about it. And that's just sad to me. That those people have no chance. They're walking around like dead men walking. Just zombies. There's no way they can ever be saved. Because God's already seen, that person didn't choose me and there's nothing I can do about it. See, both views end up having people unsaved. But in my view, God has power. He doesn't look and see and then, oh, nuts, I really wanted that one, but I can't do anything about it. No, he can save whoever he wants. He has power. Yes, he doesn't choose everyone. But both views end up having people that don't go to heaven. The question is, what does the Bible say? So that was the one problem, is people can't be saved. And unfortunately, the truth is, in both views, there are people that aren't saved because they don't choose God, or God doesn't choose them. The result is the same. The second common objection is that, well, it makes us feel like robots, because now we've chosen God, but we didn't really choose him. He made us choose him. He, like, pre-programmed us, hardwired us to choose him. So is that really love? Do I really love Jesus, or am I just doing what I was programmed to do before I was ever born? not a good robot impersonation, but AI is becoming more lifelike anyway, right? Um, well, this idea that God has pre-programmed people or chosen them, that firstly, the Bible doesn't use that language. It doesn't talk that way. It doesn't say that. You, God doesn't, I know sometimes I talk about God overriding your free will. He doesn't override your free will. He he woos you to make the right choice. When you choose him, when you come to him and you repent of your sins, it's because you want to. He allowed you to want him. He made you want him. Because he, is, he is lovely. He is attractive to us. It's our sin that keeps us from seeing that. So he acts on us to see that loveliness. He doesn't program us to love him. He allows us to see what we were actually created to do and to desire that. But again, it doesn't matter what your objection is and what in you doesn't like the idea. The only real question is, what does the Bible say? Do you see it clearly in Scripture? I'm going to give you eight passages. I'm going to read them quite briefly for time. But what I recommend you do, what I do is I, I write them in the margin of my Bible by this passage. So if I'm ever talking to somebody or I forget it and I, I need to study it for myself, I go to this passage and all the, those verses are listed there. And what I recommend you do is you just take one of these verses per day. And you just read it a few times. Read the context. Maybe read a commentary or study note. And just think about that verse. And you do that for each of these and after a week or so, you're going to be thinking along the lines of what God says in his Bible. And then you make your decision of what you believe based on that. But briefly, Isaiah 46, verse 9, God says, I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. So God describes himself in Isaiah 46, 
9 through 11 as somebody who declares the end from the beginning and causes it to happen. You know, it's like a spoiler alert. Macbeth dies. You know how I know? Because I read Act 5. He dies. That's set in stone. That's there. Who decided it? Who caused that to happen? William Shakespeare. Not the witches. Not Macbeth. Not Banquo. Shakespeare. That's who God says. I know the end, and I'm the one that wrote it. Um, that's Isaiah 46, 9. Here's John 6, 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 6, 44. Jesus said, not John Calvin, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Romans 8.29, so that was John 6.44. This is Romans 8.29. I read it earlier. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. That's when you're saved. Those whom he justified, he glorified. That's when you go to heaven. So the same people that he predestines, the same people that he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he saves, he glorifies. And half of that chain happens before you're born. <laughs> That's Romans 8. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 28. God chose or elected what is low and despised in the world, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Can't boast that you made the right choice because he chose you. Romans, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 28. Matthew 13, 10. The disciples came to Jesus and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. They're not making the choice of whether they understand the parable or not. God decides. That's why Jesus speaks in code, speaks in parables, not to make things plain, but to hide the meaning of what he's trying to say, except to the people he wants to understand, and he explains it to them. I'll read that again for you, Matthew 13, 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To them it has not been given. So the knowledge of God and the secrets of the kingdom are given to some people and not others. That's Matthew 13, 10. Here's Luke 10, 21. This is what we studied on Wednesday. There's a whole sermon on this one if you like it. Um, Luke 20, 10, 21. In the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What's he thanking God for? What's he praising God for? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So remember on Wednesday we said that there's two groups of people who know the Son. Nobody knows the Son. Uh, sorry, the Father. There's only two groups of people that know God, who know the Father. Group one, the Son. And group two, anyone the Son chooses to reveal him to. That's Luke 10, verse 22. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
This is our seventh verse out of eight. We're nearly done. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many of them as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the Gentiles in a big crowd hear the gospel. How many believe? As many as who were appointed to eternal life. Not as many as who responded. Somebody appointed them to believe. So that's uh, Acts 13, 48. And then the last one, this is kind of a clincher. John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. Okay. I mean, there's, just in case you're wondering, there's no wiggle room in the Greek either. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's John 15, 16. And some people say, oh, that just applied to the apostles. But that's the same problem, though. If Jesus can choose the apostles to be saved, and he can choose John the Baptist to be saved, and he can choose Jeremiah to be saved, and he can choose, um, because Jeremiah says he, he was chosen you know, from the womb. Um, uh, Paul gets chosen to be saved. Um, the apostles get chosen to be saved. If God can do that with them, why doesn't he do it with everyone? You see, you have the same problem. If God can choose anyone to be saved before they're born, then he can choose anyone to be saved before they're born, by definition. And he chose John the Baptist, for example, because we know because even his mother's womb, he already has the Holy Spirit making him leap and recognizing the Messiah. And we're told that he's the one that was predicted in, in Malachi. And you think God's like, I really hope this John the Baptist kid turns out to be a good kid. I hope he doesn't turn out to be like this rebel who doesn't do what I want him to do because I kind of prophesied him and mentioned him in Scripture. No, God made him do that. And if he can do it with John the Baptist, he can do it with Paul, he can do it with the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you, then he can do it with everyone. So you both, both camps have the same problem. It's just that one is trying to be faithful with Scripture and give all the credit to God as Scripture does, and the other one is trying to hold on to some semblance of, but I made a choice. I did something good. Of course you did, but why? Because God chose you. Okay, so it's been a deep, chewy session, hasn't it? Those of you with dentures, you're doing okay? Okay. Theological dentures, I mean. If your objective is, I don't believe that God would choose all and not some, because I keep hearing that, I can't believe in a God who, who would choose just a few and not everybody. If he can choose, why doesn't he choose everybody? That's fine if that's your objection. But then you can't say, I don't believe in election. You have to say, I don't believe the Bible. Don't just come with, I just, I just don't see how that's possible. That's fine. We've got tiny little brains, all of us. And this is a theological elephant. And if you've ever tried to hug an elephant, you can get your arms a little bit away, some of it. But you can't get your arms around all of any of it. It's the same with this doctrine. It's okay to say, I don't understand it. It's not okay to say, I don't believe it, unless you're also going to say, I don't believe the Bible. So what is the application? Why is all this here? Why are we chewing this steak before we've even entered the epistle? Because Peter is aware of the possibility of the difficulties you will go through in your life. And he wants to make sure that you understand, that you remember that God was aware of those things first. God knows your future. He knows that there's people in this room right now that are going to lose loved ones, their business, their health. I mean, we're all going to die eventually. He knows all of that. He's with you every step of the way. 
your salvation is not affected by that. Your salvation is, is steady and it's sure. And how do we know? Because he, he foreknew all this before you were even born. It's just a matter of seeing it play out. And he's with you as it plays out. And it's not going to affect anything in the future. He already knows that he saved you. Nothing can take that away. Hebrews 12, 2 calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Whenever you hear the name William Shakespeare, I want you to remember that verse. Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. William Shakespeare wrote Macbeth. That's why all that stuff happened. The reason I'm saved is because Jesus is the author and the perfecter. He started and he ends my faith. So I just want to close with the reminder, though, that nobody should say, okay, well, it doesn't matter if I believe or choose God because it's all up to him anyway. That is a fatal mistake. The Bible doesn't say be elected. It says repent. It says believe. It says be baptized. I'll close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon again. Do not conceive, my dear hearer, that some decree in past ages of eternity will save you unless you believe in Christ. Do not sit down and fancy that you are to be saved without faith and holiness. Lay not election as a pillow for you to sleep on, or you may be ruined. God forbid that I may be sewing pillows under your heads that you may rest comfortably in your sins. Don't fancy election excuses, excuses sin. Don't dream of it. Don't rock yourself in sweet complacency in the thought of your irresponsibility. You are responsible. We must give you both divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. We must give you election, but we must ply your hearts. We must send God's truth at you. We must speak to you and remind you that while it is written, in me is thy help. It's also written, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. So when you come to Judgment Day, you're not going to be able to say, well, the reason I didn't believe in you is because you didn't choose me. No. No, you've heard the gospel. You need to turn to Jesus. That'll be no excuse on the Day of Judgment. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I promise you this, because the Bible does. You will be saved. And then you can give all glory to God for choosing you and giving you that faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this very um, chewy theological topic that we have uh, feasted on this morning. I, I pray that your spirit would help us. We, we need you, Holy Spirit, really more than most days to understand these verses and to apply them to our lives, to draw comfort from them, and to give glory to our Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.